I knew I kind of had to do it, but I didn't know where it was going to bring me. Sometimes you know you have to do something and it objectively it doesn't make sense, but then you still do it and then a whole new world opens up. I'm Ben and you're listening to The Climate Pivot. For today's episode, I spoke with landscape architect Mathieu Mahus. Raised on his family's farm, Mathieu has carried a lifelong fascination for how nature works. And after pivoting from a job he found unfulfilling, he now runs a landscape design business while empowering others to transform their outdoor spaces using a nature-centric approach. We discussed the potential of gardens to drive biodiversity and build climate resilience, the issues with top-down policymaking, and the need to inspire individual change. I think anyone curious about connecting with nature through their own spaces will find inspiration from Mathieu's words, and his story offers so much for those making or considering a climate pivot of their own. Where did you grow up? In Flanders, so in Belgium, but in the northern part of Belgium, actually not too far from Calais. So quite close to uh, the UK. And it's quite interesting, actually, from that place where I was born on a farm, you can actually be quicker in London than in Brussels. Do you travel a lot for work? More and more. I try to get into an international audience, a certain degree getting things online, because then obviously we don't have to travel that much. But still, I get invited to speak at certain events or I've traveled to Canada this year to be in a health and wellness documentary that's going to come out next year. And my angle into that health is actually like, okay, what's happening with the health of our planet? And if we focus on producing healthy foods, how is that going to impact our personal health, but also the health of the planet? Because I see a a direct link between those two aspects. Yeah, really interesting. There's more people talking about that now, I think. And I wonder, I wonder why, like, have we reached a critical point where people are realizing there are these two problems happening and maybe they're linked? Well, I can tell you my personal story. For me, at a very early age, I still remember very clearly, I must have been around three years old, growing up on a family farm. My father is a farmer, my brother is a farmer. And I still remember clearly that I was starting my fascination for plants and for gardening. I was so amazed about the fact that if you put a seed into the soil, it can actually grow into a plant and even become a huge tree eventually. So for me, that was something that sparked my imagination. And I just wanted from that moment, for some reason, I wanted to figure out how is this possible. So from that early age, this is kind of my guideline for the rest of my life. Obviously, I grew up on on the farm. I learned a lot about farming. And then I decided to go into landscape architecture because I just find the idea of growing a garden interesting. And then I got more into like, okay, where are bigger scale developments? I had just finished my master degrees. I was super excited to start my first job. I, I graduated. I found a job. I thought like, wow, this is amazing. This is, this is my next chapter in my life. At that time, I was living in Munich in Germany. So it was like at companies that are working on a high level, landscape architectural, like designing public spaces and all that kind of thing. So it was high level. But after a couple of months in the job, I found myself completely depressed in a way that I felt like I'm not completely in purpose of what I'm here to do. I just felt like I'm not made to be in this nine to five job where people tell me what to do. And so like from that period of being depressed, I said, okay, this is enough. I'm going to quit my job. I kind of saved a bit of money. I took my backpack and I traveled the world to actually see what projects are out there that are actually having a positive impact on our environment. So I went to visit a lot of eco-resorts in Indonesia, in South America, 
farms that were producing on a regenerative, ecological, somewhat organic way to like open my eyes and see what the potential is. And, and again, this was all in line with the idea of learning as much as I can about how nature works. And from that journey, I, I then also went into consulting for a number of firms on a project basis. And then at that time, I was working in Saudi Arabia. We were working on projects in Riyadh, the capital. There are like quite big canyons. Our task was to transform them back into their original state because they were oftentimes used as dumping sites. You obviously know that in Saudi Arabia, it's extremely hot. But these canyons were much lower, so it was kind of a microclimate and there was also much more humidity. There was an actual river running there. So we could develop some things to improve the environment and also the, the life of the local people living there. And from there then, obviously, this probably sounds familiar to everybody, COVID started. It kind of came in like a bomb. Saudi Arabia said, I still remember the day I was in my job. It was Friday afternoon. They told me like, the borders are going to close on Sunday. We cannot say how long this is going to take. If you want, get out. So I just said, okay, I don't want to be stuck here. And then I found myself back in Belgium and then I decided to take my own journey and start my own company and get into the realm of actual landscape designing projects and further consulting also. And then now more recently, I'm also teaching people online how they can actually create or start more from an analysis perspective on their specific region or their specific garden, how they can execute it and, and do a lot on their own. Because there's a quite a high desire from people to start doing things for themselves in their local environment to, to start growing some food, to start growing plants that can actually have an impact on the local environment, even on, on a global scale. So I kind of jumped onto that wagon. I think it's really important to tap into like local needs and experience and what people need because a lot of this work there is a risk of like coming in and imposing something top down mm. and actually you know if you have knowledge and experience to share that's great but you need to kind of find a way to dovetail that with like what people actually need what mm. their limitations are what the opportunities are locally just to get a bit of background then can you describe the work you're doing today and the split of that? How do you spend your time across the different elements of your work? So it's quite interesting that I have different kinds of clients. Some clients, like you take care of everything. I really like your work, but I have a busy job. And for me, it's just important that it gets done as quickly as possible. And that is kind of the top-down approach of a lot of our projects are, are like that. But then I could also see there's another group of people that they actually want to take charge of it themselves. And I've actually had one client where we did, we kind of redid, well, not her whole garden, quite a big, a substantial size of it. She loved it, what we had done. But then she said, like, I, I don't want a landscape architect anymore. I actually want to do this myself. I want to build the other part of my garden myself. I, I really feel the urge to, to make my hands dirty, to learn the skills of designing. So then now she, she also joined my masterclass and she got a lot of value from there. And she's now like in this journey of becoming an actual gardener. Because back to your question now is that like, how is it kind of divided? It's hard to say the, the amount in percentage. But what I do know is that I found a great deal of people that said like, look, I like your work, but I, I want to learn from you. I want to start doing things on my own. And if I say like, okay, well, I, I will just redesign your garden and you'll have everything done for you. They're like, no, no, I actually want to learn it myself. They, they like spending time in nature. They know that climate 
and our climate situation at this stage is something that is important. So, and they, they understand that they can have an impact on their local level, but they have no clue where to start. So there, my masterclass helps people hugely to actually learn in, in a very condensed time because it's like nine weeks, the, the program itself. And what's actually even more amazing is that I wouldn't have been able to teach this probably one year ago. It wouldn't have been possible. But then now there's, there's become so much innovations in learning online that I've used a number of tools that I integrated in the system to actually create way more value. Or let's put it in another way. I think that if I would have wanted to teach what I'm currently teaching a year ago, I'd probably have to ask like, no kidding, like five or 10 times the price of what I'm asking today. But because there's an, an information revolution that can support these kind of systems, it's really interesting where, where this is going. Because this is something that for me is very important as well to a certain degree bring out as much information as possible that is for free. Because how I look at things is that if I get people that actually want to work with me, I already want to educate them before they start working with me. And now I got, a, I got onto the wagon of TikTok because it's fun that actually you can just make very short snippets uh, of information. And then on my book website, actually, you can find tips and tricks that you can apply immediately in your, in your garden. It's great and it benefits everyone. It benefits not only the planet and people who want to do that work, but also ultimately anyone working in that space like you, as you say, it helps to have an educated, interested population in the, in the work mm. that you're doing. And I think that's a really underappreciated element of the period of time we're going through is that so much more of this information has become accessible. I mean, even just, you know, you're talking about TikTok and I think mm. there is a generation who are mainly learning on TikTok and there are huge problems <laughs> with that, but there are also yeah. huge opportunities because it is just opening up access to so much information and there's so much content on there about sustainability. I follow a lot mm. of botanists and <laughs> and ecologists and yes. it's fascinating you're hearing voices you wouldn't have heard otherwise no i agree and i think what's interesting is that from everything that we know as let's say as a human race the, the things that we do know a lot of things about you can find all of that information online but the real issue is kind of like what is going to be valuable for me because you might like try and figure it out over all these thousand and thousand and thousand videos online but there's no actual structure that will, like, if you have a, only a set of time, like a couple hours a week, then you're just not going to find everything that you, that you need. I have to say, I think with your podcast, what is really amazing is that you're making information available for people in terms of things that are important for you. We talked about it before, about purpose, before we got onto the call. And I think you have found your purpose in providing as much information as possible. And I think that's already a huge guidance for people that feel the same way so they can actually narrow down their information. Well, I'll ask it to you. What do you think about the importance of purpose in trying to like figure out in this life what you can do, what you shouldn't be doing? How relatable is that for you? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, it's obviously something I talk about a lot, both on this with people I'm speaking to and offline as well. It's a personal thing. I think it varies. I think some people maybe aren't driven as explicitly by a search for purpose as others. For me, it's always been there. And I think certainly in the last kind of five years, it's become really very much an explicit thing that I'm aware of searching for. And I couldn't imagine not. I just can't conceive of a life where that wasn't really central to my being and to, to what I do. 
So it's a difficult question to say, like, how, you know, how important is it? It's kind of everything. And I also think part of it is, from a personal perspective, it allows me to go through the world with a sense of, like, I'm navigating the chaos to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. So it's partly self-preservation in that sense, probably. But it, it allows me to switch on the news and see everything terrible that's happening and to think, like, everybody, we're just, you know, very small parts of something very big, but that I at least know I am doing my best to improve one tiny part of that. I think that yeah. helps me sleep at night. What about <laughs> you? I really love your answer because I think... This is something that you could be compared to like this kind of concept of the butterfly effect. One wing of a butterfly might start a whole storm. And I think that's hugely important in the world today where everybody's like overwhelmed with the bad news and historically or kind of evolutionary, we as humans were attracted to bad news because the bad news was was hugely important for our survival. I personally choose not to watch the news even if I'm in my car, I don't listen to the radio because I personally, I can't handle it. Maybe a very weak point of myself, but I get caught up in, in the negativity. And I can't, I can't afford that because I'm actually working on a lot of solutions. So I try to then focus on, on building positivity. And I think that's, that's hugely important. If you're kind of caught up in the, in the negativity of the news, you won't take any action to, even if it's a small change, it's, it's kind of difficult to do it when you see all the negativity. But then if you kind of can find a mechanism that works for you, and for me, it's like, just don't get in touch with most of the news, then I can actually focus on making small changes each and every day. I Like if I can reach another client that can then start growing his own food in his garden or that I know that he or she is going to start planting more or even on like I'm working on with farmers as well to inspire them to make change in the production process. It's a very small thing, like you said, but that's the only way of making advancement. No, I relate to that. I'd love to just revisit the moment before you went traveling and before you realigned what you were doing. Mm -hmm. What do you think it was particularly or what series of events precipitated that and what were you feeling in your mind and your body before and as you made that change very interesting question now i have to look deep you kind of get caught up in this nine to five job and you start at it in a way like okay i've come from this farm family i've studied landscape design i'm working at a at a firm that is highly renovated in this city munich that is already like rich in landscape architectural history so it's kind of like the, objectively the best fit. But then I feel that I, I didn't have enough impact. I end up kind of working on these bureaucratic plans where it's just very time-taking and things don't move as fast as I would like to. And then I think something happens where you, in that way, you move away from your purpose. And that's, I think, what we talked upon. I, th- I believe that everybody has a certain purpose or something that he or she can fulfill in his lifetime. And then... When you are in alignment with it, you kind of go with the flow of life and things start moving in the right direction for you. But if you kind of get away from that purpose, and for me, my purpose was, okay, I want to impact as many lives as possible to empower people to actually start doing a positive impact on our climate. And I thought going into this new job that I was going to do that. And to a certain degree, I did, but it was too far off of where I could be. And then when you're too far off of being in alignment with your purpose... These things like what many people are also facing, a kind of burnout and getting into this depression. 
And in my opinion, that's because you're just too far off of your purpose. And then you have a choice each and every day. Okay, are you going to stay in that for longer? But then what are the consequences going to be for your health, maybe your relationship? And then I personally just said, okay, this is enough. And I'm telling it now as if I know and I was super conscious about everything and I wasn't because it just was kind of impulsive at that point. But I think Steve Jobs said as well that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. So at that moment, I knew I kind of had to do it, but I didn't know where it was going to bring me. Sometimes you know you have to do something and it objectively, it doesn't make sense, but then you still do it and then a whole new world opens up of opportunities. And that's kind of also related to the cold feet, like, oh, you know, this is a new step that I could make, but it's going to put some things at risk. I might not earn that much and you might struggle on other parts of your life, but you do know that you're drawn to it and then you jump in the cold and then eventually everything turns out well. Thank you for that question. It kind of struck me to to look backwards there. Yeah, gosh. No, thank you for that answer. That I can't tell you how much I related to that. And I hadn't thought about it in that way. But what you said about, you know, these things only making sense in retrospect is so true. And I just have memories of, you know, five, six years ago being in a in a very different situation of knowing I needed to make a change. And I had I gave myself a summer and I just spent every day thinking at some point this is going to emerge and it just didn't emerge and so I just sort of made tiny little steps of like well I find this interesting so I'll do a bit of this and then I well I find this part of this interesting so I'll focus on this and it was a really gradual process it was like kind of sculpting something that I couldn't really see and I think what was interesting to me is while you were talking about this you were kind of gesticulating with your hands when you're talking about purpose, like purpose being this straight line almost, like nobody listening to this will be able to see, but purpose being this thing straight ahead of you. And if you veer off track, you go to the side of that. My question is, is there a sense of destiny in purpose for you? Is it something that already exists or is it something that you're making as you go? <laughs> I really love this question. I think destiny and purpose are intrinsically linked, but then... I don't know if you know the poem by Robert Frost, The Road Less Traveled. Do you know that poem? Yeah, I do. I think that's that's something that strikes for me in that way that oftentimes you, you end up at a crossroad in your life. Like there's two ways to go and you kind of know what your destiny is. You, you know that, okay, you kind of see yourself in the next five, ten, maybe longer time where you're heading and then you're still faced with daily decisions and... Sometimes it's difficult to navigate in that. But I feel like that oftentimes in that situation, it's always better to make any decision rather than staying like in a position where you're not moving ahead because it's, there's two roads and you think they kind of look equally. But then you still decide to take the, the road less traveled by, like Robert Frost beautifully says in his poem. Then there's a lot of amazing things that can happen from there. But then on the other side, if you still decide to take another road, maybe that road is also going to bring you to where you eventually want. I think many, let's say, we're getting a lot of one-liners or bumper stickers in here, but uh, all roads lead to Rome as well. So I think action is always better than inaction. By taking the actual step, you kind of see, oh, what is this? What is happening? You can then reevaluate if it was the right step and then you move ahead again and you're already closer. I still remember the day at some point in my life, I was doubting if I could should get into the farming business because I grew up on that. And I think in farming, there's the biggest potential to actually reverse climate change. So I actually was like, geez, if I want to have huge impact, maybe I should get into farming. But I knew I've already had that journey of landscaping. 
And so it was like a crossroads, but I, I still decided to stick with what I'm currently doing. But then now I'm actually getting back to a certain degree because I'm helping my brother to improve the farm and kind of in, in this farm consulting. So that's an interesting question to think about. It is. And it's just, I'm really struck by, you know, things feel very urgent when you're living them in the moment and time feels really quite short. And, and then I think, well, actually all being well, careers are very long and they're normally very winding and very, you know, certainly today for a lot of people, they take lots of different shapes as the years mm -hmm. go by. And I think embracing that what we're going to be doing in five or 10 years may look very different from what we're doing now is quite freeing mm -hmm. um, because it's an inevitability because of technological changes, climate change, so on. There are so many outside influences on that that are going to change the way we work and what we do that it's you never have to feel that you're stuck doing one thing and that you've arrived at an end point, I think. Probably like not even that long ago, let's say about 70 years ago, people decided to get in a certain job and then they would do that for probably most of their lives. But then now, like, especially with AI, jobs are just changing so rapidly. And then there's an opinion of like, whoa, this is it's dangerous. It's going to take away all of our jobs. But I actually think that it's a huge opportunity because it's going to free up time and resources for people to work on more fulfilling things. And then we're back to the purpose-driven career. They might actually get now the ability to, to work on something that fulfills them. Or we can get more people into gardening. I think it's, it's very hopeful in that sense that people can free up time to work on things that, that have a, a purpose. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, there are, there are so many benefits on the kind of psychologically and physically to being outside and doing that work yourself, growing your own food, whatever that is. And at the moment, it's a real privilege. But the more and more that can become available to people, I think we'll all benefit. We haven't spoken really about the specifics of your work. And I think people who don't know much about landscaping, gardening, maybe don't appreciate what doing that well, doing it sustainably, doing it in a way that supports biodiversity and so on mm. looks like. So I appreciate that's a huge question, but could you just sketch out the shape of that and the focus of your work? Well, great question. I think in terms of the design and landscape architecture projects, even though I have this focus of trying to make projects, gardens that are in harmony with nature, the actual kind of framework or approach is quite similar to people that don't put a lot of focus on it in terms of like, okay, we have a preliminary design or before that we dive quite deeply into an analysis. And actually I'd have to say in, in this analysis phase, we do probably spend more time on investigating the local conditions and the, the soil, the current state of the garden, farm or, or specific piece of land than other firms do. Because What's amazing is that if you investigate as much as possible into that, and I, I tell this to my masterclass students, like you have to start thinking like Sherlock Holmes. If you go outside in your garden, like what plants are already growing? Is there any sign of maybe pollution? What type of soil do you have? Just trying to understand your conditions. Also like go around in your area, see what plants are already growing. You can see plants that are in a healthy state. Like this is an inspiration for you or this helps you. So I think in that part, the, that approach is very important analysis. And from that, the more time I spent on that, the easier it becomes to get to the design part. 
And in many cases, it's still a bit of a mystery for me, but when I've done this like investigation phase and then I start actual sketching my projects, it kind of flows on its own. There's a, a part that is not necessarily from me. I don't know. It kind of flows through me. I get into this flow state and ideas come and come and come. So that's then basically the second phase is to actually do the designing. And then from there, we get to like a final design that actually shows a specific plan to people of how their garden are going to look like. And then we get into the next phase, which is execution planning. In that way, that's quite similar to other architectural services or, or general architecture that we just make all the plans that are necessary for contractors that we then partner with to execute it. So sometimes can get quite technical about, okay, pavements, how to build it. But more interestingly is then to decide what plants to use. You make a detailed planting plan. We actually kind of decide each and every plant that we're going to put where for specific reasons. Can be biodiversity, can be just to have a, a general aesthetic. So and then building that whole file into something that, you know, okay, now we can actually start executing. Then we, in our normal one-on-one -on -one approach, we then contact a couple of contractors that we know that they are able to do it and that we trust that they also have a kind of connection with biodiverse gardens. We get the prices, we compare them, and then we decide to run with a company. And then if it's required, which we try to do for our projects in Europe, we also go on a certain site supervision. Like I have a project in Hamburg. I'm working with a great execution company, and we kind of do quite a lot over FaceTime or, or distance for more of the like building but then I'm going to go to Hamburg to actually go and place each and every plant because this is the last phase, this site supervision. And for me, it's very important to go to the site and actually see how we're going to place some of the plants. Like in this project in Hamburg, we already finished a part of the garden and I found a tree that is, is very beautiful, like a cornus, that's dogwood in English. And it had like a branch that was hanging over like in a nice direction. So we then decided to put that over the main pathway. So now when you enter the garden, you kind of walk under that branch. So I'm, I'm there then to say like, oh, wait, let's, let's try and get the most potential out of these plants. So that's the regular way of approach. Then for the masterclass, I explain people how they can run through these phases on their own. Yeah, I'm now also getting into a new phase where we're going to work with local farmers here in Belgium to create a group of people motivated farmers that are willing to actually go into a new direction of regenerative farming. That's, in my opinion, the only way that we're going to be able to farm or produce food in the near future or any today. Like many farmers are, are, are facing many difficult situations with uh, crops that don't grow as planned. And so we're building a group of people with quite a few experts in the field to, to secure the future for farmers because they are under a lot of pressure and threat. So that's kind of the three main fields I'm working on today. Yeah, and I can see, obviously, you're, with your background in a farming family, I can see why you've made that loop back to farming in some ways. And also, as you said earlier, farming makes up so much of our rural land and land use change and direct emissions through farming are responsible for so much of our current climate impact as a, mm -hmm. as a species. But I guess when I first came across your work, one of the thoughts I had was, this is amazing. I'm so pleased that people are doing this and that you're doing this. But also, do you ever have to make a case for the importance of gardens in the climate crisis and fighting the climate crisis? Because I don't know the stats, but I assume gardens make up a relatively small proportion of our land mm -hmm. as a planet. Mm -hmm. 
And I'd love to know, like, what impact they can have doing this job, doing it well. What impact can that have? Well, I really, really love this question because I have something interesting that I came across from somebody in my network that I don't know the numbers in other countries, but I think in Belgium, gardens make up 10% of the land use, which is quite high because yeah, many people have like a private garden and our country has quite a high population on smaller surface, but still that's low, I'd say on, on a global scale, I have no clue, but it might be less than 1%. But then what is actually quite interesting is that there's been research conducted on like what are actually on our planet the most biodiverse places. Where can we find the most birds? Where can we find the most insects? And as it turns out, these high biodiverse places are often the, the suburbs of cities. To a certain degree, it's also the pristine landscapes that are nature reserves, which we don't have much of them in Europe. Actual nature reserves that are protected and where there is a lot of different animals, so also like grazing animals, which are important for a high biodiverse system. But then as like the most interesting part is that they found that these suburbs are actually high biodiverse. And the reason is because in these suburbs, people have this backyard garden. They plant all kinds of different plants from all places of the world that flower at all kinds of different moments throughout the year. And this actually attracts lots and lots of wildlife. So I think that's a, a very interesting approach and that can actually show people that with their backyard garden, they can actually have a huge impact. And they then also function as like corridors for animals that pass by. That's pretty amazing, right? That is amazing. And I can completely see why when you kind of go out into the countryside and you see, you know, vast fields that look like, quote unquote, like they're sort of nature, but they're mm. often just monocultures. And then, yeah, in areas like I'm sitting right now in suburbs of a big city, every house nearly has a garden and most of them are planted up with dozens of different species. So I can completely see how that would happen. I'm also aware that there's a trend, certainly in the UK at the moment, I don't know how it is there, to have either just grass yards or even worse, like plastic grass. Is that something that concerns you? Is it a trend that you're seeing elsewhere? I have to say, personally, I'm not so much aware of it, but I do like I do see it around me in my environment. Like in Belgium, each house has like a front yard. And I know there is like an Instagram page from Belgium Front Gardens. It's like the most low maintenance gardens in Belgium. But it's kind of a joke because it's all like these ugly, concreted front gardens, which is like horrible. But it's quite funny to see it then in, in that sense. And I think, again, if people can realize that these gardens that they just try to concrete, it's, there's no value even for their property. Like it's even proven that a, a real estate property can increase by 10% if there's an appealing garden or a, an appealing landscape. I'm actually currently working on a quite a big uh, green roof garden. And I know that the, the current owner, who is also the investor and, and the driving force behind it, is that they are going to keep that as their asset. And like at the bottom, there's going to be small shops. And on the top, it's going to be offices. And they said, we really would love to have like a biodiverse rooftop garden so that people that are going to the office, they can actually enjoy some nature aspect or garden aspect, because that is a huge asset to that property. And only also just like looking at energy efficiencies, the, the mere fact that we can build this garden is going to reduce insulation costs and energy costs quite drastically. Well, that's fascinating because that kind of comes on to my next question, which was what different impacts can you have? Because the big one that people will think of is biodiversity, right? And I think more and more people are aware that certain plants 
will draw in pollinators or birds or create habitats where different species can live or create kind of corridors for them through cities or what have you. I guess there's also the carbon storage element, although you're, I presume, working on a scale where that's like maybe not something you're kind of measuring. I don't know. But I was just interested, what what are the other kind of outcomes you hope to have from this work? So I think in gardening, the highest potential is actual, like what we talked about, to have this kind of biodiversity hotspots, just by the, the amount of different plants that you use that flower at different times. And that can be hugely beneficial for, for wildlife. Also, like even... In my masterclass, again, I, I tried to encourage people to put up as much birdhouses as possible because I know that the more biodiversity you can create in your garden, the lower actually the maintenance of your project is going to be. So it's kind of a win-win-win-win on many levels. It's just going to be more beneficial that the plants will grow better, they will look better, they're going to perform better in, in production or in, in, in having more beautiful flowers. So in that way, it's kind of logic to invest in that. And I really like what yeah, I'm thinking in the UK or in that side of the world, you have a huge like history and it's kind of part of your culture. And I love that. It's always a, such a joy to go to, the, to England to see all these beautiful gardens. So I, I really like that. And especially like the southeast of England, what they call the Garden of England. It's just an amazing, beautiful landscape, so diverse. And I think the southeast of England is a beautiful example of how you can actually combine certain aspects of nature creation. Like there's, if you drive around there in the countryside, you have beautiful trees, you have kind of shrubs, hedges everywhere. That is a huge value for the nature while still farmers are being able to produce food or to, to have enough land to actually be productive. So I do think it goes hand in hand just from a landscape development approach. But then going more deeper into the actual agricultural practices, it's kind of similar to what I explained in the garden, that if you, you work with nature, with the harmony of how nature works on a longer term, because this is some, not something you're going to change overnight. Usually it's like it takes about five to seven years before, let's say that there's been heavily industrial farming practices, that if you want to make a shift to regenerative, that's actually beyond organic because it has such a high focus on creating healthy soil and healthy soil is like the basis of everything. So if also farming can go into that area, it can actually go hand in hand with biodiversity creation. I sometimes hear people like, okay, we need to completely split farming from nature and we have to like make this extremely small scale, high productive food production systems that are kind of industrial and then make more nature reserve elsewhere. But there's so many opportunities there that where nature and farming food production practices go, go hand in hand. And I think in a way that now that UK has kind of, well, the opinions will be different that when UK left the European Union, that is now able to make its agricultural policies more site, let's say site specific. Because I think that's a huge struggle in Europe that the agricultural policies are kind of the same for the whole continent. But there's so many different uh, conditions. So I think Europe and agriculture is a, still a huge question mark. And I might offend a few people with that, but the whole agricultural subsidy system is uh, quite a mess, to be honest. I completely agree. I don't even think that's that controversial because, yeah, the more and more people I speak to who are involved in the farming community in the UK just really saw the opportunities of Brexit for lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. But, you know, from my point of view, restructuring our subsidy program and so on is is one of the few good things that could come out of that mm. if we were to do it well. I, I was also hopeful in that sense, or I talked to a few farmers in, in UK that they were kind of happy not to be linked again to the European system that is not working. But it's like, again, this top down, bottom up. Where is that influence? Because I feel that in general, if you tell people like you have to do this and this and this and this and this way, they oftentimes either don't like being told what to do or they just don't do it or they just do it to be okay with the whole bureaucratic system. They don't actually do what would be beneficial for their, in this case, farm. Yep. And I think there's a huge potential in, in empowering farmers to, to come more from that bottom up approach. And I think my brother is a great example of the farm that he's been taking charge of creating his own value chain and his own markets, more specifically with mobile hen houses. This is a great way of producing very healthy and sustainable ecological ways of having eggs. And that kind of came from his initiative. Obviously, it was supported with some kind of subsidies, but it came from his bottom-up approach. And I think that is something that needs to be stimulated more that farmers have that ability to come up with own ideas mm, yes and of course it's really hard to develop policy that encourages that sort of sensitivity to local issues and local circumstances that you were talking about but that does seem to be a bit of a theme of what you're saying that that's really important particularly when you're working with landscapes and the living world that you you mm. can't just impose a structure from above Obviously, we know that climate change is affecting all ecosystems. Is that something you are seeing in gardens? And is resilience to climate change something that you are conscious of? Yeah, definitely. This is something that is hugely important, this aspect of climate resilience. And we are well aware of it because in just in terms of the evolution that we could see in plants that we were able to use in gardens have decreased quite a bit. But then on another way, there's also a couple of new plants that we are able to introduce because we don't have these uh, harsh winters anymore, which is in a way an advantage as well. We just have to be a bit careful with invasive species. But then in terms of the actual resilience, I think that to a certain degree, the plants that I choose or that people should choose is, is important. But what is amazing is that what is even more important is to focus on the health of your garden. And the health of your garden boils down to the health of your soil because the health of a natural ecosystem is directly linked to the soil health. And what is pretty amazing if we now get into the, the soil is that the soil is like our own stomach. And in fact, the roots of plants are actually inverted stomachs because they have like the same things that we have in our stomachs. They can take up nutrients they have an interaction between all kinds of microorganisms, uh, enzymes, and there's still a whole world that we don't know about. But we know that this is where all the magic happens, where plants can take up nutrients, and this is linked to the health of the soil. So if you can focus on your garden with creating a more healthy soil, then your plants are going to be more healthy, and they will be able to withstand more and more difficult climate conditions that we are facing, longer, drier periods, in more extremes in temperature, uh, no rain for a long time, and then way too much rain for, for another time. If your soil is in a great condition, it will easily be able to handle it. Well, obviously, there are also actual disasters. This is another case, but I always compare a healthy soil to a sponge. Like, you know, if you have a sponge in your, in your home, if you put it under the sink and you put water in, it can hold quite a lot of water in terms of volume. 
And then when there's too much water, it just runs through. And this is how a, a healthy soil also looks like. And that has many advantages in terms of it has a higher water holding capacity, meaning that if it gets drier for a longer time, the plants will have more availability of water. But it also has a, a great drainage capacity, meaning that if you test it in, in your own sink or in your own uh, with your own sponge at home, you'll see that once it's full of water, the water runs through it. And that's the same thing with, with the healthy soil. If it's been dry for a long time, and your soil is unhealthy, and then it rains a lot, you'll have a, a lot of erosion. Yeah, this is where the climate resilience comes in, or, or where it's intrinsically linked to the soil. And that's the same in farming, actually. And that's also in my upcoming book, which is 12 Universal Laws of Nature, How to Get the Most Potential Out of Your Land. And it's focusing on a, a, ver a variety of things, but the laws that apply to nature are the same in gardens and, and in farming. And just one great way of doing that is getting into the amazing universe of composting. If you can get your hands on some high quality compost, either by doing it yourself or connecting to a local farmer that is producing high quality compost, then this is going to transform your soil, so also the health of your garden. Thank you. I loved that description of soil as like the contents of the stomach and the roots as the inverted stomach i'd never heard that before but it makes so much sense for thinking about thinking about soil as as food for plants and it is made of plants obviously and it's food for them and should be this really nutrient dense thing and i think there's a tendency amongst people who maybe don't kind of spend time with soil to think of it almost as something dead when in fact it's very much something living and in fact it's pretty amazing that it might sound like that it's a comparison that the stomach is inverted. But in so many ways, it looks like it is because in our own gut, if you have a healthy gut, it will also be full of microorganisms and then you are going to live healthier. And that's the same thing with the soil. It's proven that one teaspoon of healthy soil can contain more microorganisms than there are people on the whole planet. Can you imagine that? That's hard to, to imagine, but it's true. Yeah, it's incredible. It really is. It's a lovely way of thinking about the connections between you know, animals, those of us who move around and plants, those of us that maybe stay a bit more still is somehow sharing in the same process of gaining nutrients in, in, in a similar way, just it, it's structured a bit differently. Before we wrap up, I'd love to know what your hopes and ambitions are with your company, but also more broadly. So yeah, that's a really cool question. And uh, as the year is coming more and more to, well, it's not yet coming to an end, but it's nearing. I always spend some time uh, between Christmas and New Year to, to think about what has happened in the past and where I want to head. And I think uh, I'm really excited about the future in terms of that it's possible to empower people to start their own gardening journey. I've, I've been able to do that or I've been blessed to make that possible. And I see so much potential in, in continuing that journey and, and empowering people to start making actual change in their local environment. Even if they don't have a backyard garden, maybe they can get into a community garden. They can find a way to do something. That's something I'm very hopeful for. And then I also think I can, what I'm going to be focusing more and more on, and it's maybe also a shout out to your audience, is that I want to work more on, on bigger scale projects as well, where we can create a whole team of, of amazing people, but like work together with scientists, with creative people, and then create kind of this mastermind group to start working on on developments where you can actually connect farming with gardening with uh, housing developments like bringing all of the great things together into uh, one 
bigger development. That would be something that, that excites me a lot and that I want to work on. Yeah. In terms of farming as well, getting like there's this huge revolution happening that more and more farmers are waking up in terms of taking responsibility in what they produce. That it's something that is good for their consumers and for our planet because that's very linked. Oftentimes when you can produce healthy foods for your consumers, it's going to improve the health of our planet as it turns out. So I'm, I'm very hopeful to, to get as many farmers on board as well to, to make that shift. I share your hopes because it, it really is incredible work. And I think something I just thought of as you were speaking was that, you know, we think of gardens often as private spaces. They are literally private property often, but they're also, you know, often where we go to be outside that is not public space. But there's also this, I guess, increasing realisation that in many respects they are public space, they're planetary space, and that they contribute to planetary health. And I really love the work you're doing to make that link and to improve these private spaces for the public good. Well, thank you, Ben. This has been a, an amazing talk. I, re I really love your work, so I'm really congratulating you with what you're doing. I think it's a, a hugely important aspect to bring to the world to, to show people that the solutions are actually here. It's all about just taking the right steps. So that's also if people feel like what I have been talking about, if that speaks to them, they're happy to reach out, then we can get in touch through my team and see if they are interested or, or keen on, on making that shift in their personal life as well. Amazing. And where, where can people find you online or read your work or about your work? So there's a couple of ways they can easily reach out to me on most of the social media platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, or TikTok now as well. And if they want to get more direct information, they can actually go to the website www.gardenofyourdreams.com they will find some uh, information there and even some tips and tricks that they can apply immediately in their garden and then my book is coming up and if you pre-order my book you'll actually get a signed copy so if you go to the website www.12lawsofnature.com you'll find more information about that there and then lastly there's the one-on-one -on -one company that I talked about where we do like the, the whole done for me approach for people that's uh, www.paulonia.la.com you'll probably put that in the in the show notes yeah i'll put it all in the show notes thank you and i'll also pre-order your book when i <laughs> get a moment amazing because i'm really interested to read it after our conversation matthew thank you so much it's been really great talking yeah definitely thank you ben thanks so much for listening to the climate pivot if you've enjoyed the show and found it useful, I could ask you to leave it a five-star review, subscribe, or donate to the coffee link in this episode's show notes. But if I'm honest, there's one thing I'd really love for you to do. I'd be grateful if you could recommend this podcast to two friends who you think it might benefit, who might be at the beginning of their own climate pivots or wondering how and where to begin. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, take care of yourself others and the planet and good luck with your climate pivot.